I'm Martin Reeves, chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Catherine Judge. Catherine is a financial markets and regulation expert and a professor of law at Columbia Law School. Today, we're here to discuss her book, Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source from HarperCollins. In her book, Catherine discusses how the middleman economy has arisen, how middlemen have become more powerful, the consequences of that, positive and negative, and and she has a proposal for a path forward that involves more direct exchange. So perhaps a controversial topic, but I think a really interesting one. So thank you for joining me today, Catherine, and congratulations on the book. Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking about it. So you're a law school professor, but you've just written a book about distribution in the economy. Why did you write this book and why now? Yeah, I mean, I'm a law professor, but really all of my work has been about institutional design and and intermediation. And really, the book is an effort to to look across a bunch of different domains of our economy and see real parallels in the change of the intermediation system. And so it's a, a changing system that I studied a lot originally in the financial space. So we had two big trends in finance. We went from having all these small community banks that that really had relationships with customers, these very large banking organizations. They brought data and standardization to the underwriting process. And that really allowed us to, to standardize loan underwriting in a way that enabled securitization, that allowed us to tap new pools of capital. And we ended up with a system that was far more complex but that also yielded, at least in the short run, very significant gains. We saw home ownership go up a lot. We saw the, the racial wealth gap and the racial housing gap go down. And of course, then the, the other shoe dropped. And part of what we realized is that there were very real gains from the system. The system really did allow us to harness specialization in really great ways, but it also resulted in this incredibly long chains where we lost information. Right. So... Tell me about the whole economy then, because I think you're now concerned with the broader phenomenon, which is the rise of the middleman in the whole of the economy. So what is the middleman economy and what happened? Yeah, so the middleman economy is just that. It's these two interdependent trends of increasingly large intermediaries or middlemen and then increasingly long supply chains. And so what the book maps out is we saw this in finance, you shift over to food, we see very similar phenomenon, an incredible growth in the size of the largest food middlemen much longer, more complex global multi-continent supply chains. So it really makes it actually hard to know where most of our food is grown. Retail, same thing. And when you say middleman, do you mean the, the platform economy, the Amazons of the world, or do you mean distributors or, or both? Yeah, so I define middlemen as the actors who are providing value in significant part by helping to overcome all the informational challenges and logistic challenges that otherwise stop an exchange from happening. As a practical matter, they're oftentimes playing other services as well. So platforms are certainly a type of middleman. But I think, you know, thinking about Amazon, really, there's two businesses there. One is the platform and the other is Amazon, the the retailer. They are both, in some ways, a type of middleman. Walmart is a middleman. You can also think one step up from Walmart, a company like Cargill. You know, Cargill is actually doing a really amazing job, but also has an incredible amount of power in terms of bringing corn and soy and all kinds of other produce all around the world. So let's start with the benefits, because it seems to me from your book, you're you're talking about benefits and costs. So this sort of whatever's happened to the middleman economy, what's the beneficial side of that overall? As you said, the book is really about the trade-offs and the fact that we sometimes see the benefits more than we see the costs. 
but you can think about the benefits in your day-to-day life, right? The, the array of goods that we have access to is far richer than it ever was previously. The degree of convenience we enjoy in trying to get access to those goods is really significant. And despite the recent bout of inflation, the whole, what we pay for food and clothing, our ability to, to access something like credit, all of them have, have become cheaper and more readily available as a result of this. So if you think about it just in terms of efficiency, at least in the short run, there's usually gains from the rise of these structures. But I'm sure there's another hand too. On, on the other hand, what are some of the costs or the risks? Yeah, so there's a whole variety of trade-offs on the other side. And that's really what the book's about, is helping people understand this framework so they can make more wise decisions about how to balance those trade-offs. So one, as we talked about a little bit earlier, there's these supply chains that are incredibly complex. They make goods cheaper in the short run because you're disaggregating production, you're enabling the benefits of specialization, but there's a lot of fragility. You know, I actually sold the book in January, 2020. I was like, supply chains are more fragile than anybody realizes because they were so similar to securization chains. And unfortunately, that's been borne out. Second, that loss of information can also make it really hard in today's business environment. Today's consumers, today's investors are actually bringing a much broader set of values to the table. You know, it used to be if you're an investor, you only cared about risk-adjusted returns. Now we're seeing trillions of dollars flow through ESG investments. And then there's the question, well, what actually constitutes an ESG investment? And a core challenge is it's not only what the company does, but also what their upstream suppliers oftentimes do that is necessary to be able to answer that question. And right now, not only do they not have that information, it's oftentimes hard to get. So to the extent you have investors and consumers who want to know more about the environmental impact and worker impact, it's a lot harder to provide. And the other thing the book explores or explore and direct is the array of ways that over time, systems that are value creating initially can become entrenched in ways that really preclude evolution and disruption in ways that would unlock very meaningful value. So there's been a lot of discussion around the concentration of in the platform economy, for example. One of the challenges there is the traditional harms that you might show in a in an antitrust lawsuit or something are, are not apparent, right? I mean, if, if we have a broader variety of goods available with faster delivery and keener costs, is there a consumer harm? Or maybe slightly more broadly, you know, are we set up to regulate the sort of harm that we might be talking about? Yeah, and I think the question is what we're set up to do now, but also what we might be able to do in the future. And again, one of the important contributions of the book is to say we need to not look at a static picture of what things look like right now. It's not a snapshot, but understand how where we are right now is going to feed into potentially different dynamics in the future. So yeah, you think about platforms. So first of all, the very fact that they're so powerful isn't what we expected, right? Originally, you know, Bill Gates saw the beginning of the internet as the end of the middleman. <laughs> And we certainly saw areas where travel agents, you know, are far less relevant than they used to be. But other than that, we actually have an increase in the size, the power, and the importance of intermediaries. I think it's it's fairly well-established principle that if there's too much concentration in production, that's a problem. But is, if there's too much concentration at the, at the level of the intermediators in the economy, is that, you know, what sort of problem is that? Legally, for example, is it clear that that is indeed a problem? I mean, that's one of the issues that's actually being debated is legally, is it a problem under current law, whether it should be a problem under, under evolving sources of law? And again, part of the question is who's bearing those costs and how tangible are they to the parties that matter? So Amazon's an interesting example. It's incredibly powerful. 
in part because it's built this incredible information structure through its website, this incredible logistical infrastructure. But of course, as a consumer, it makes my life a lot easier. If you're a seller that's selling goods through Amazon, the portion of each sale that Amazon is capturing has gone up each and every year for the last eight years. And so we are now in a situation where for your typical regular online shopper, they start at amazon.com. They are very likely a prime member. So they're going to have to pay for shipping if they don't buy through Amazon. It feels free if they're buying through Amazon. And so part of what we need to pay attention to is just there might be meaningful benefits. And I think there are meaningful benefits. And I don't think we want to go out and try to destroy Amazon. On the other hand, you could say if we want to invest a lot, for example, in the post office and subsidize access to the post office, we could create an overall ecosystem that makes it easier for sellers and buyers to opt out some of the time. And so once we shift from like a where are things now to how might that power be exercised in the future, then suddenly not only is it important that we think about competition policy, but we can also start to think from the, the bottom up, how do we create the infrastructure that allows ongoing meaningful choice? And it means if you're a firm that's engaged in selling a good, one of the reasons to, to engage with a framework that Direct presents is it allows you to understand, usually in the short run, your life is going to be a lot easier if you're relying on middlemen. So both in terms of like upstream, how you're sourcing goods and how you're selling goods, but long-term that might create additional vulnerabilities that you're not thinking about. I guess I buy the argument that there's been some sort of concentration at the level of platforms and intermediaries, but in some ways, distribution systems have become more complex. I, I guess it depends on when we're comparing to when, but we've come from a, a legacy, if we go back sort of 50 years, of you know, multi-tiered, very fragmented distribution chains, extremely complex, where we had almost no information at all about the, you know, the flow of goods and, and money and information through those supply chains. And I remember historically, companies like P&G invested in something called Efficient Consumer Response, ECR, which was a, the beginnings of a rationalization and the application of information technology to these traditional chains. I think relative to that, our supply chains are rather simple and transparent, but perhaps you had a different point of time in mind with respect to comparisons. I would say two things. One, I would not describe today's supply chain as simple and transparent. The proportion of supply chains that are going across multiple different continents has increased dramatically. And if you actually look at the work that's been done on globalization, while it's really stalled out post-2008, Part of what we saw is originally it was improvements in transportation that made the difference. And so you had an increase in the sale of already produced goods across different continents, across different countries. The IT revolution and improvements in communication is what actually enabled the disaggregation of production to so many different spots. And that has been a more recent phenomenon because that's what allows the, the simultaneous communication across these multitude of nodes. All that being said, you're certainly right. There have been a lot of gains and some additional complexity over the last 70 years. And so I don't think we should look at it as a baseline of like, we want to romanticize a point in time in the past. Rather, what we ought to be asking is, given all of the technology and innovations that we have seen, have we been harnessing them in the ways that are going to best serve the interests of the, the broader economy, the consumers, the interests of firms? So net-net, are there more benefits than gains or are essentially making an argument that we need to change or, or regulate something? I think that's the wrong way to actually ask the question. I think there have been very meaningful benefits. 
how many of them have been unlocked by these structures versus other technological improvements are very hard to, to unpack. But the question is to look domain by domain, where are we relative to where we could be in terms of resilience, accountability, and efficiency? And so recognizing that we have this multitude of aims and you can start to, and part of what the, I draw out in direct is I use case study after case study to show, look, there are some areas we really need intermediation. You know, you think peer-to-peer lending, we tried to get rid of intermediaries and all kinds of things went wrong. So it's not that intermediaries are bad, but that we need to be smart about the role that they play and smart about the risks associated with their size and their multiplicity. And so then we can start to examine through this more informed lens where we're making the right decisions and where, you know, if you're a firm, you actually might be able to, to have economic gains or, you know, additional feedback from consumers, for example, if you want to cut out one layer of intermediary. So if it's a mixed bag by sector in terms of benefits and costs, do you think that the market will solve any deficiencies there are? So if in some cases we have you know, too much concentration, not enough choice, or perhaps harms to producers as opposed to consumers, or not enough information on the origin of goods in a world where we care about you know, how long things have been transported as part of a sustainability argument, for example. Do we think that those sorts of issues will self-correct over time, or do you think it may require some regulatory in- intervention in many cases? I think we need both. So we are already seeing some meaningful corrections in the market. You know, one of the advantages is most firms right now are busy rethinking how they construct their supply chain. And that's partly because of the fragilities revealed by the pandemic and partly because we are now more attuned to geopolitical risks. So having exposures that are so far upstream, you can't understand your exposures or suddenly something firms are becoming much more attuned to. So I do think we are seeing a lot of self-correction and a lot of helpful innovation with platforms, also enabling shorter forms of exchange in ways that, that are feeding a different type of consumer demand. So I think the market clearly has a role to play, but I think the market in and of itself is going to be insufficient. One of the things Direct also explores are how all of the the characteristics that make middlemen or intermediaries so incredibly useful. They create this great infrastructure. They have all these relationships. They have these expertise. Allow them time and time again in domain after domain to come in, become really useful. And then after they are entrenched, use both regulatory tools and market-based tools to maintain their dominance even when there's technological changes that should allow more efficient ways of doing what they're doing. So I think part of the reason to pay attention to these dynamics is usually in the short run, the gains are significant, but there's a tipping point where those costs start to exceed the gains and helping to create the nudge necessary for that the innovation and disruption that's healthy to, to occur. There's oftentimes a role for regulation. And would that require simply the application of legal frameworks that we already have, or would that require regulatory innovation? I ask that because, you know, in the absence of the consumer harms that one might traditionally look at in, in antitrust law, for example, I'm imagining it might be a little more complex. We might need some, some regulatory innovation. I think we're likely to need both. And I think some of the innovation is going to happen at the federal level. I also think there's a place for states. And I think we're already seeing this actually happen in a number of different places. I just got back from a, I was in Germany last week, And they have a a new act adopted in 2021 dealing with supply chains and dealing in some ways with exploitation of workers further up the supply chains. And part of the idea there is that by creating a standardized approach, you're allowing information generation. And so there's collateral benefits across multiple different industries and for consumers. 
because they can now understand in a different way what information they have and what information they don't have. And so it's helping to, to spur a multi-stage process of some levels of intervention, some levels of innovation feeding off of each other to help address the need for greater resilience, the need for greater accountability that we're currently seeing market demand. One of the things that I've written about is the intractability of the climate change problem. And one aspect of that is that if every company truly did its best, and obviously we were a long way from, from that in terms of everybody committing to, you know, scope three net zero targets and achieving them on ambitious timescales. But if that were the case, you might still have a problem because it's a collective action problem. If I, if I reduce the weight of my cars by making them of, of aluminium, but that increases the energy intensity of metal production, then, you know, we may have limited net gains. So what you need is some sort of coordination across the economy, some scorpion keeping across the economy. That's pretty hard to do. So what are the candidates to do that? From a certain perspective, the digital ecosystems may be one of the best potential information coordinators that we have. So I'm wondering, does that make any sense to use the uh, intermediary to become major solution providers in, in new areas? You know, you've said that there's a deficiency of coordination and information flow in some ways, but there's also the potential to use the nodes that we have more effectively. Yeah, and I think both can be simultaneously true. So on the one hand, helping to facilitate and overcome coordination challenges is a classic role that regulators play, long have played and have played in a really critical way. And one of the reasons the market alone is not going to solve this is we're actually seeing the market here operate in ways that are different than simple assumptions of how markets work, right? I mean, the traditional idea with Hayek is the reason we like markets is they produce information. They take all these disaggregated preferences that people all over have and suddenly produce this price that is a symbol that helps us understand the cost of production relative to the demand for these goods. Part of what I chart out indirect is in finance and food and all these different domains, as these supply chains become more complex, rather than producing information, they're actually producing information gaps. You have multiple different layers. You have mixing and, and separating at each of these different layers such that you create new informational demands if people want new information, if people start to care about the environmental impact, if people care about scope three, for example. And then the complexity of the system actually makes it hard to reduce that information. So what we see very often is people suddenly realize, oh, I thought I, like, you know, I contracted around the characteristics I thought I cared about. But now there's this additional attribute that I suddenly realize really matters, either because my consumers care or because of a geopolitical concern that suddenly means that there's a different cost to having an exposure. And now I want that information. Well, I created such a long chain. It made things cheaper in the short run, but now it's created a vulnerability and it's actually incredibly costly for me oftentimes to understand that vulnerability. So one of the calls for shorter supply chains is it also can enhance resilience when you don't yet know the nature of the shock that could be disruption. Okay. Well, you've, you've had a lot to say about intermediaries and your book has been out for a while now. So I'm wondering what these, these middlemen have to say about your ideas. Have you received any reactions from the intermediaries? You know, a lot of the reactions, I think, tend to come from the people who have a more friendly response to the book. I mean, I think the really fun thing about writing a book is you suddenly hear from people in all these different domains about how what you're doing is relevant to what they're doing. So I hear from some of the intermediaries that I actually am more inclined to celebrate in the book. Again, the book is not a condemnation of intermediaries. It's saying we need to understand them to understand which ones are more likely to be forces for good, ones that, that might not be. And we see, for example, in, in food delivery, there are some intermediaries that really work hard 
to try to make sure that power stays with the restaurants, influence stays with the restaurants, but they're still going to provide a digital interface because that's what a lot of consumers want and it makes things easier for consumers. And there's others that are really focused more on maximizing the degree of control that they have. So I'm hearing, you know, from the folks that have said, we have a better way of actually helping restaurants with delivery. I've heard a lot of folks from actually from healthcare. You know, one of the things I don't discuss in the book at all is the healthcare system. And it's amazing how many people have reached out, whether it's, you know, concerns about pharmacy benefit managers or doctors who are actually concerned about hospitals, talking about the role that they see these intermediaries in their domains providing. And in ways that are similar to the book, they came in because they claimed they were going to create value and they did in the short run, but then they became entrenched and started to distort the overall ecosystem in ways that are harmful and then really hard to address. I mean, it seems to me that your book is partially about, you know, the unintended consequences of the concentration of intermediation and what one can do to make that better. It also seems to be, correct me if I'm wrong, an argument for a more direct approach in some cases. So in terms of direct distribution, I'm wondering, is that feasible in many sectors of the economy? And do you think that that's a natural evolution that will naturally drift in that direction? Or or do you think that will require some sort of intervention? Yeah, so the, the call for direct is really the notion that direct should be a cornerstone which is a very, very small piece of a broader edifice of the healthier system that I think in some ways we're already moving to and where I think we really need to accelerate the move towards. And direct plays an important role for a couple of different reasons. One, it's a lot easier to understand how much is at stake in intermediation when you study extremes. So what the book charts out is the extreme of a hyper-intermediated economy, you know, like the, the money flowing from from Europe and Asia into to U.S. home loans, 2006, and the opposite extreme of direct, where you actually have meaningful communication and an opportunity for connection and community building. And then says, you know, 98% of what we're going to do is probably somewhere in between these two extremes. We can start to understand what's at stake by, by looking at both of them. The other reason direct is so key really quickly is a very small part of direct, having it be a very small portion of our lives just helps us to understand the people and the places behind the goods we consume, behind the food we eat, which going back to your point about the the intractability of climate change, I mean, I think part of the reason we allowed the problem to become so big is we were systematically blinded to the way modern agriculture affected the land and the rivers and the air in the areas where it was undertaken. And so the notion is not that we should go back to a, a direct exchange economy. I don't think that's realistic but that a small amount of direct helps to educate all of us as individuals and and reawaken an appreciation that has been dulled over time by virtue of the the blindness that has set in. I'm presumably, if things like relationships with consumers and the inclusion of local economies and transparency of origins and things like this are considerations, there's no reason in principle why digital platforms couldn't provide both benefits, the benefits of efficiency and scale and and also the, the sort of informational benefits, including the ability to make, I guess, decisions about non-economic factors or more broader economic factors like, you know, sustainability content and so on. So do you see a sort of a quasi-direct solution as being part of the answer too? Most definitely. And the book really spends a lot of time diving into the platform economy. And what we see there is a microcosm of the economy we're generally 
where there are some platforms that do a really amazing job of allowing meaningful communication and transparency on both sides and who've really succeeded as businesses. I mean, something like Etsy has actually made new types of businesses possible by virtue of enabling transparency and meaningful connection. And then there's ones that are really trying to, to control the ecosystem and might allow you know to see star ratings of the party on the other side but are really limiting the ability for there to be direct communication or a sense of understanding of impact. And so part of the beauty of writing this book right now, and part of the reason I was motivated to write it right now, is while on the one hand, control over data can accentuate the power of the largest intermediaries, technology also has the potential to be incredibly disruptive because it does allow for the possibility of scale at the point of informational connection while allowing really small scale and more intimate connections. And we're already seeing that start to happen. So a lot of your examples are from the US, but do you think the patterns you're talking about and the dilemmas you're talking about are are fairly global in nature? Yes. And so I think they've played out in a particular way in the United States. And I think it's just easier to understand a phenomenon when I'm not talking about it in the abstract, but using example after example after example. And the US is ripe with examples. That being said, you know, I did just get back from Europe and I was talking about these issues at Oxford. I was talking about them at Frankfurt. And, and you see these same dynamics arrive, sometimes with a slightly different overlay. I think that the phenomenon has probably been more extreme in the United States, where you know Walmart has just dominated the Fortune 500. It's been the biggest revenue producer, biggest employer for a long time. Amazon, a close number two. And the efforts to harness the economies of scale have taken hold in a particularly dramatic way in the United States. And of course, globally. I mean, even when we're talking about the story from the United States perspective, a lot of it is a story of helping us to understand how globalization actually happened. And if we want to understand what we mean by globalization, we need to actually look into the details of how these intermediation schemes took hold and changed the nature of production. So unfortunately, our time is up, Catherine, but I could end with a more personal question. So what are you working on next? Are you going to continue to drive the cause outlined in the book of uh, more direct and more informed supply chains? Or have you got a new project in the works? I was going to say, I always have a lot of things in the works, so it's always hard to know where to start. Uh, But yeah, so I think part of what the book really helped me to appreciate is in thinking about intermediation, the bigger question at stake is how do we address difficult economic policy questions? And for a long time, the focus really has been on efficiency and trying to figure out, you know, where markets function well and and really intervening when we have market failures. If we start to think shocks to the economy are more frequent, geopolitical tensions are significantly greater, that we really need to start prioritizing resilience in a different way, we're going to need potentially a different paradigm for understanding those those trade-offs. And so part of what I've been working on is trying to understand if we think about interdependence as really a, a core characteristic of how the economy works, how does that help shed light on some of the more difficult policy issues we're facing today? Well, thanks so much, Catherine, for joining us today and decoding and teasing apart all the arguments in your book. Thank you. So I've been talking to Catherine Judge about a new book, Direct, The Rise of the Middleman Economy and the Power of Going to the Source. I thought it was interesting in shining a spotlight on the intermediaries in the economy that we often don't don't look at so much and, and also the connections you trace between 
for instance, local communities and the health of small businesses and the connection to sustainability and so on, the connection to policy. So I think a fascinating read for anyone in business. If you like today's discussion, just subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast. And as always, we'd love to hear any feedback on this or any of our, of our podcasts.